Hi, this is Big Talk. Michael Glab here. My guest this week in the studio, Susan Lepselter. Susan, thank you for being on Big Talk. Thanks for having me. Susan is Associate Professor of Anthropology and American Studies. She has studied interesting groups of people in her time. The first thing I'm going to ask you, Susan, what is a UFO? Yeah, I love that question. I like to think about all three words in UFO, unidentified, flying, and object. So, you know, let's first think about unidentified. Um, If something is unidentified by definition, then what does that tell us about it? Nothing. Yeah. Or else it tells us, it tells us nothing about the actual object, but also maybe there's something about it that is supposed to kind of remain indeterminate in some way, you know? Like if it were just um, a, a ship, a spaceship that we had identified and labeled as such, and then it became, you know, a thing, maybe it wouldn't have the same kind of eerie quality that it has when we think of something as being unidentified. Because the, the unknown is scary. Because the unknown is scary. And it's also filled with possibility. Uh-huh. So it's alluring and scary. And it allows us to sort of dream into it, if you will. You know, if something is unidentified, then it has so much potential to think about. Now, you say both alluring and scary, mm. which seems almost contradictory. Mm. So how can that be? Well, I do think that that is sort of our response to the idea of UFOs, whether we think of them as travelers from another place far away, from another dimension, as some people think of them, whether we think of them as part of the human experience of the supernatural, which is a universal kind of encounter that all human beings have, and they think about things like that differently depending on their culture. So I... I'm often asked, you know, oh, do you believe in it? Are they real? And I always have to deflect to this kind of answer because it's unidentified. And human beings have all of this experience with weirdness, with uncanniness, with unidentified things. That's part of our lot as humans, you know. Things that go bump in the night. Things that go bump in the night or whoosh. (laughs) (laughs) And so how could something be alluring and scary? Well, you might be somebody who just finds them scary and just wants to avoid any kind of thought of UFOs. You might be somebody who is really into it, like a buff, wants to think about what they are, wants to track them. There are people who are ufologists who track all the sightings, and they they find them very fascinating and interesting and want them to come into the realm of, you know, just regular scientific exploration where they would be identified. Um, But there's a lot of us who kind of can feel scared and attracted to the UFO at the same time. Um, because there's so much possibility. I mean, what if we're not alone on Earth? What if our yeah. experiences are not the, just the sort of regular material experiences we think we have all the time? What if, you know, what if there's something there? And that is scary because, as you just said, the unknown is super scary. Yeah. It just is, you know. But it's also, I think, the idea of the potential, the something more, as I call it, the feeling like we have a sense that maybe there's more than just this ordinary realm of things. And that has an attraction to it. Before we go too much farther, uh, Susan Lepselter, let me say that you have written a book called The Resonance of Unseen Things, Poetics, Power, Captivity, and UFOs in the American Uncanny. Now, that was released by the University of Michigan Press in 2016, 
In fact, that book uh, won you the 2017 Gregory Bateson Prize given by the Society for Cultural Anthropology. You were looking at groups of people who are fascinated by this kind of thing. Not only fascinated, but are drawn in. They want to get closer to it, as you say. So I was talking to people. Now, a lot of my research was from a really long time ago. Uh I had written articles, but I hadn't written the book. And so most of the conversations that I had with people were actually from the late 90s. Uh So I talked with people a lot. I hung out with people um, and who basically had structured a lot of their social life around this quest for thinking about UFOs. I also just look a lot at stories and the kind of story worlds that we live in and how these UFO stories kind of connect to other more ordinary stories that we live with. Is this a particularly American phenomenon? Mm. Well, there are UFOs all over the world. They're big in Russia, they're big in England, they're big in Japan, South America. But I think the way, there are certain specific qualities to the American way of thinking about them and dealing with them that, that I Um, I'm interested in as an American Studies scholar. Give me an example or two. Well, one of the um, one of the things I really write about is the abduction story. Uh huh. And that really started in the 1960s. The kind of classic abduction story as we think of it now, with a kind of medicalized clinical. Um, do you know what this is? So, oh, uh, sure. I yeah. remember the story of I think it was Bob and Betty Hill. Betty and Barney Hill. Betty and Barney I remember Hill. Because they, for some reason they have the same known names as the people in the Flintstones. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, Betty and Barney Hill were a mixed race couple from New Hampshire. Right. And um, middle class couple, and they were driving along, um, coming home from a trip, and they had one of those experiences where they saw a UFO. Their car stopped, all the electricity went out, they they sort of saw this terrifying bright light, and then suddenly they had missing time, and yeah. they went home, and they had a kind of uneasy feeling, and um, they underwent, hi- underwent hypnosis to recover their memories, and they both had very similar memories of being abducted and of having a kind of clinical medical experience of what we now think of as like the little gray aliens with the big eyes. And right. Um, so they're not like, they weren't... The schwa, I think. That, yeah, the yeah. schwa. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. The schwa sticker was just like, the schwa was like that. And, um, you know, so there's other models of aliens. Like um, in the in the 50s, there were these sort of benevolent space brothers who would come down and they looked kind of like tall and Nordic and they were here to bring world peace. And then, of <laughs> course, we're all familiar with the um, kind of nuclear age anxiety of the sort of you know, militaristic invasion from Mars kind right. of thing that sort of seems very resonant with nuclear anxieties. Um, but in the 60s, we start getting these kind of clinical medical abductions. This this is really sort of what took off as a kind of classic abduction story. Um, so what, what struck me um, in thinking about America and a kind of American story worlds that we live with is that we have always had a strong history of captivity narratives in this country. And hmm. I think of that as a sort of the kind of um, definitive genre of American storytelling. Our first bestseller was about a Puritan woman who gets kidnapped by Native Americans. Wow. And so I try to think about these stories 
not just as if they're the same exactly, but how they, that's why I have the um, word resonance in my title, is how these resonate with other kinds of American stories and experiences. So that's kind of what I'm looking at there as particularly American. Now, captivity narratives are not just American, but they are very American in a way. Yeah. And again, uh, the reason you're interested in this is because your specialties are anthropology yeah. and American studies. What are people thinking? What are people doing? Exactly. Who are they? Who are they and who are we? Who are we? Yeah. I mean, that's what I am particularly interested in is we have these stories that that seem so kind of out there or marginal, but really they tell us about the center of our American soul, really. Yeah. You know, they're not just things that are sort of other. They really tell us about who we are, what we want, what we, what we fear. I find it interesting that you mentioned anxiety mm. several times. Okay. And it seems like, as in my readings, I have found that a lot of these stories uh, multiply mm. during times of great anxiety. Yeah. As you mentioned, there was the nuclear bombing anxiety. Yeah. Then I, I also saw that in the 70s when the women's movement was coming on yeah. and uh, there was a loss of faith in government because of Vietnam and Watergate. There was another uh, spurt of right. uh, stories like this. So there's a connection between times of anxiety and this. Yes, I think so. Or all of the technological changes that happened in the last half of the 20th century and that, yeah. that we're really experiencing exponentially. Yeah. Um, all of these things seem to create, you know, kind of an atmosphere where certain things feel like they make more sense. Uh-huh. And um, in terms of anxiety and, you know, whether these things are kind of out there or not, when I was really doing most of my um, interviewing, um, there's a lot of kind of uncanny conspiracy theory in this book where people's ideas about, um, you know, the deep state and um, the, the way that government hides UFOs and the role of government, all of that sort of really started to take off in popular culture, as you say, in the 70s, like after the loss of faith in government yeah. that happened through the, through the 60s, really, with all of the people sometimes just point to Watergate. But, you know, there's a, there was a lot that happened. And, of course, for some groups like African-American groups or Native American groups, they never probably had faith in, right. you know, in, the, in Cronkite telling the news as it was. But <laughs> there was a sort of generalized sense of a loss of faith in a single story, right? So when I was first starting to talk to people, the sort of idea that there was a conspiracy as a sort of general um, kind of just fabric of American of the American way that um, the government was actually a conspiratorial force that was sort of marginal and it's really interesting I think one of the reasons that um, it's interesting to look back in time and do something over a long period of time like this is that now we can see of course that these same sorts of conspiracies that used to be sort of dismissed are really at the center of power now mm -hmm. these used to be held by people who felt that they didn't have power Right. And now conspiracies are everywhere. They're in the mainstream media, certainly. They're emanating from positions that are very powerful. Right. So somehow people a, a while ago had their finger on something. They had their finger on a public feeling. Yeah. And that public feeling has really taken off. Well, as you say, there was a time when we got our news from the likes of Walter yeah. Cronkite. And Walter Cronkite wouldn't even give these kinds of right. ideas the time of day. Right. But now 
our news comes from a million different directions, and there are many sources that say, oh, this is the story. Exactly. I mean, I think it's really interesting that um, it used to be a kind of progressive position to say, well, there isn't one truth. There isn't one reality. Yeah. You know, we have to look at things from different perspectives. Um, and we've watched the truth, the idea of the truth, or the idea of the real fragment in ways that we couldn't have predicted. Do people get a sense of comfort or succor from these stories? In my experience, yes. Some people, of course, are just afraid of of the unknown. Mm-hmm. Um, and of course, sometimes these abduction stories are, are terrible and traumatic. So I wouldn't want to minimize the trauma of, you know, some some alien being taking you in the night and, and taking your sperm and eggs and, um, you know, creating another race. I mean, all of this is part of what people um, have remembered or uh, forgotten and remembered later. So that's that's a trauma, certainly. But there's something else, too. I mean, there's that sense of sometimes being chosen in some way, um, a sense of being able to be sensitive enough to sensitive enough to be uh-huh. somebody who really gets the kind of layers of reality that other people are blind to. Right. In the conspiracy world, mm-hmm. there's the sense that I'm smart enough to see through the curtain. Yeah, right. I'm smart enough to see through the curtain. And it's, you know, the curtain is there. So are you going to look at it or not? Yeah. And there are people who have had experiences with aliens that were healing experiences, too, that were almost like, you know, supernatural visitations where, um, you know, for people who have, in my interviewing, some people felt that this earth was such a hard place that, you know, maybe there were other worlds where they would feel more at home. And that, that you know. Sort of an Edenic world, huh? An Edenic world, right. And that actually, I mean, you know, sometimes people would even sing this hymn, this earth is not my home, I'm just a passing through, it's through, it's an old hymn. And yeah. it kind of resonates with this, like maybe, maybe this world with all of the violence and, you know, difficulty um, isn't the only way wow. that one could live. As far back as the Middle Ages, mm. People claimed to be visited in the middle of the night by succubi. Mm. Uh, These were uh, demons that came to them in their sleep and essentially probed them, maybe vaginally, maybe anally, maybe in other ways. A lot of it had to do with sexuality or, or sexual organs. Yep. Folklorists have tracked the idea of this kind of like the succubus or this what they call the nightmare. And the nightmare is universal. It doesn't mean that every single person in the universe has it, but it means that it can be found universally, that some part of every some part of the population everywhere is gonna have this experience. And I ask my students, there's always a few students who have had this experience and in the nightmare, which could be the old hag in Newfoundland, which could be the doubt so among among people. I mean it's all it's there's there's one in the Philippines, Japan, I mean everywhere really has some way of telling this story where you feel like you're lying in bed and you can't move. Yeah. So this is sleep paralysis is a physical human experience. Right. It's real. It's real. And then the nightmare with a capital N, not just a bad dream that you might have, which is a small N nightmare, but the capital N nightmare is you feel that there is 
an alien presence. It is not coming from your head. You can't move. You can't do anything about it. Yeah. And it comes and it often sits on your chest and is suffocating in some way. And it feels sinister and dangerous. Wow. And cultures have different ways to deal with this. Um, and there are some like, you know, we have this tradition, as you say, of these sorts of sexualized demonic visitations or um, kind of these sinister encounters where you can really see that the kind of cultural um, apparatus that we have to explain this human experience really varies historically and in terms of the other sorts of stories we live with. When you're teaching and you talk about this type of thing in your classes, again, you're an associate professor of anthropology and American studies. Do you teach any classes that specifically deal with the information in this book? I do. Okay. When you're teaching, do the students say, oh, what a bunch of, what a crock? Not really. Uh-huh. You'd be surprised. They're, they're, well, my students tend to be curious. They uh-huh. probably wouldn't take this class if they weren't. <laughs> it's an elective, yeah. Um, although I do have students who are taking it for gen ed credit, and, uh-huh. and so sometimes they, you know, they're, they're not immersed in this to begin with. But um, students, well, first of all, I often ask them if they've had sleep paralysis, uh-huh. and many have, or their roommate has. And or, they're not afraid to raise their hand and say, yep, that's me? Some students are always willing to say, yes, that's uh-huh. me. Yeah, so they will t- sometimes share their experiences with this. And, you know, after a while, when you teach anthropology, what you learn is that there are so many, there's just such a variety of human experience in the world, but there's also a core that's kind of, you know, similar. So we have a, we have a shared legacy as human beings. We yeah. all have certain kinds of ways of making meaning, but then there's all of this variety. And so after you study this for a while, I don't think you're, nothing that you go through is, is too weird mm-hmm. to be human, you know. Now, we know we're at a university that attracts people from all over the mm-hmm. world. Do you find any discrepancies or differences between the various cultures? Someone from Kazakhstan, maybe, would they be more likely to mm-hmm. say this? Or would someone from Kansas mm-hmm. be more likely to have experienced? I love that question. You know, I haven't really... Uh, tracked that yeah um i've noticed um most of my students who have talked about this openly and that could be having to do with do you talk about it openly or not right um seemed and seem to have been um you know just kids from the midwest or from you know it's entirely possible that a foreign student would be sort of loath to bring this up and paint themselves as even more different right Right, because it would be hard enough to be a foreign student. <laughs> at times, yeah. yeah. One of my favorite books was written by Carl Sagan, mm. The Demon Haunted World. Mm. Now, in that book, Sagan argues that people with overactive imaginations and contempt for scientific authority would one day come to embrace charlatans and demagogues mm. in the political world. Now, the people he described as having overactive imaginations and contempt for scientific authority were just the type of people who mm. told stories of abductions and sleep mm. paralysis and mm. so forth. Is that's what's happening now? I think this is more complicated than Carl Sagan's quote makes it sound for me because there are people who are in power yeah. And um, I'm not speaking about anybody specifically. I'm speaking more abstractly. But it's pretty easy 
to tap into people's feelings of, you know, that there's something wrong with society, that the American dream isn't exactly what it is meant to be. And I don't think that the people who I spoke with are in any way um, to blame for the political chaos we're in right now. And the reason I say that is because I think that the people I spoke with were incredibly intellectual and uh-huh. imaginative. They might not all have been intellectual in the way that would um, be recognized by the kind of major institutions, but they were always thinking, always trying to figure out what is reality, what's going on. They were thoughtful. They were thoughtful. They were driven to try to figure out what, what reality is, and I don't think that can ever be a bad thing. Now, I do think that there's some kind of bitterness in our society at the moment that we all see, and that can tap into feelings that something is amiss or wrong in ways that we can't quite predict. I don't really see people who mistrust the ways that science has been, for example, distributed in a way with, with, there's sometimes it's not equally accessible science. Sometimes it's dismissive of of people's experiences that are not scientifically replicable. Yeah. And that in and of itself to me um, says that, says something that, you know, has to happen in science education more than just says that, oh, these people are are stupid or uneducated or something like that. If science wants to Mm -hmm. uh, present itself or position itself as the curiosity yes. group of people. Exactly. Then why are you saying I'm not even going to listen to you? Exactly. Yeah. You know, curiosity and maybe science. Maybe what science offers is a really systematic um, kind of method to investigate things that we're curious about. But it shouldn't be this kind of dismissal, which has other kinds of social and cultural implications for dismissing huge groups of people, which I don't, you know, obviously. So I wouldn't say that, oh, these people are overly imaginative. I don't really think there's such a thing as being overly imaginative. Real science, to me, should be imaginative. Yeah. If someone came up to you and said, look, I got to tell you this. Mm-hmm. This, is, this is weighing on me for years. I was abducted. I was probed. They were in every orifice of my body. It was horrible. Would you be tempted to say, let me try to disabuse you of that? No. And of course, people do say this to me all the time. I mean, when people hear about what I've written about and what I've studied, you wouldn't believe how many people have had experiences like this who don't go to groups, who just people who I just meet in the course of life have had experiences like this. So my expertise is in culture right. and society. I don't actually know what has really happened to people. And you're are, just listening. I just I'm listening and trying to fit it into the meaningfulness of culture. What kind of meaning comes out of this? I would never say no you're wrong about what happened to you. You know, uh-huh. to, you you know I would try to listen and um, what I try to do is to think about what what is meaningful about this story? Why are people having these kinds of experiences at this time in in our society? You know, how do people share these stories? You're a social scientist, keyword science. Mm. In your gut, when you hear these stories, do you have to sort of argue with yourself and say, listen, listen? Or do you say, I, I wish I could set them straight? 
personally? No, no, I really don't think I wish I could set them straight. What I feel in my gut, and maybe why this is appealing to me, is I feel like the people who are talking about these things are kind of philosophers and yeah. thinking about, if you think of philosophy as, as a kind of method to try to figure out what reality is, what experience is. I see people as trying to figure that out all the time. And I haven't really met anybody who said, I know exactly what happened. I know exactly where these aliens are from. I have no doubts about it. People instead think about this in a very curious way. Right. And I respect that. You know, I respect the quest. And I think that level of human experience has really been shut away from our society. A lot of other societies, you know, they would help you figure out how to deal with, you know, the supernatural or uh-huh. they would, you know, other societies cultivate certain people who are good at going into trance states and dealing with the supernatural. Yeah. So that's all part of our human experience. And so when people say things like this, I think they are undergoing something human, something that is, you know, not just something that they dreamed up by themselves, but something that that we don't really understand. I think we would love to find out that there are intelligent civilizations, beings, not of this earth. Yeah. Would you? Yeah. I mean, if, if we are going to find that out, I would love to be alive when that happens. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that would be amazing. <laughs> yeah. Now, I would like them to be benevolent, you know. Well, I should hope. <laughs> but here's the here's the thing. Are we benevolent? Yeah, right. Maybe these beings would come here and find out that we're no good nicks. Exactly. <laughs> and that's, you know, when so in all of these different sorts of interpretations of these experiences, sometimes you have aliens come down and say, you know, you guys have invented this, you know, terribly dangerous technology. Um, you better be careful. You know, yeah. you, could, you could blow the earth up. The day the earth stood the still. The day the earth stood still. And sometimes they themselves are technologically really dangerous. They yeah. are too advanced. They they want to blow us up. They have the technologies that we don't, just like as a lot of abductees I met said, just as, you know, the Europeans coming over here with their big guns. Yeah, yeah. Very similar story. But in both of those stories, the theme is be careful of blowing the world up. Right. You know? Right. It, it, it's a fragile existence. It's a fragile existence. And it could go away at any second. And this is this is what I really think right now about the new uptick in interest in UFOs. Uh-huh. Is that it makes us see the Earth as a fragile, small, um, possibly um, impermanent place. Right. It reminds us that we are a dot in the universe. It reminds us that we, our experiences are not the only experiences to have. And right now, the Earth is in a moment of crisis. Yep. You know, ecologically, and the UFOs. One thing that they do is they remind us that. Well, if I say they remind us, what I could say is the experience of encountering a UFO, the experience of thinking about UFOs, that reminds us to be careful on Earth of our planet. Susan Lepselter is an associate professor of anthropology and American studies at Indiana University. She has studied groups of people and has written about them who have had abduction stories and have UFO experiences. She's the author of a book 
entitled The Resonance of Unseen Things, Poetics, Power, Captivity, and UFOs in the American Uncanny. That's from the University of Michigan Press. Susan, thanks for being on Big Talk. Thank you so much. It was fun.